Junior Church. Our message today is, What Can Satisfy Our Deepest Hunger? Next first section, Hungry for the Wrong Reasons. Our human souls are complex bundles of desires. Howard Hendricks once was trying to describe the word for soul in Hebrew, which is nefesh. He said something like this, you go over to the window and look into that robin's nest full of young hatchlings all straining their necks and mouths agape, eager for their next feeding. What you're seeing are five nephishes. That's what our souls are like. Little bundles of desires, yearnings, unfulfilled longings, hidden aspirations vying to be satisfied. Sometimes we yearn for things that aren't good for us. Sometimes our hungerings are for actual food, but if we pursue fast food constantly, we may end up supersized. Or sometimes we fall into emotional eating. We resort to comfort food in an attempt to deal with relational hurts or emptiness. Poor communication can also have unexpected consequences. A doctor decided to put his overweight patient on a diet. I want you to eat regularly for two days, he said. Then I want you to skip a day. Eat regularly two days, then skip a day. Follow this pattern for two weeks and come back to see me. After two weeks, you should lose five pounds. Two weeks later, the man came back for his appointment. He had lost 20 pounds. The doctor asked, you lost all this weight just by following my instructions? The man said, yes, but I'll tell you, though, I thought I was going to drop dead on that third day. The doctor asked, from hunger? No, the man said, from skipping. (laughs) Jesus had a bit of a communication problem with the crowds that were following him. They were hungering for the wrong thing, a Messiah that would meet their physical needs. When they didn't seem to understand that's not what he was about, He used some food imagery to try to describe what they really needed most and what was required for them to become truly satisfied. Next section, milking the wonder worker. A couple of weeks ago, our Jersey heifer Honey gave birth to a lovely little calf named Halo. Patty and I obtained a little vacuum pump that hangs from the ceiling and a single milking machine, and we've been getting proficient at milking our cow. So far, we've tried milkshakes and yogurt and butter with the output. For a successful milking of the cow, there are basically three requirements. Gert and Jake are going to set me straight after this, I'm sure. A, get her where you want her. I put on a halter and tie her to the edge of the stall by the hay rack and feed bucket. B, give her what she wants. When I've got the milking machine already and my milk crate stool in place, I dump a scoop of grain mixture in her feed bucket. And C, take what you can. When I strip out some milk, attach the milker and massage her udder while she lets down her milk and munches contentedly on her grain. We may get up to about four liters per milking at this point. Our scripture passage in John 6 picks up the story just after Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, that's just counting the men, so probably more like 20,000 by the time you add in women and children. As the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover food, word started to circulate amongst the crowd, John 6, 14. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They would have made Jesus king by force, but he stole away to a mountain by himself. That evening, the disciples got into a boat, the only one there, 
and set off from the east shore to get to Capernaum over in Galilee on the west. Now, a strong wind was blowing, the waters were rough, and the disciples were having trouble rowing. Jesus came to them walking on the water. When they took him into the boat, immediately it reached where they were heading. So you have this apparently son of man, human, who also had miraculous powers, wonder-working son of God, able to wonderfully multiply loaves and fishes and also having supernatural control over the forces of nature. But the crowd wasn't witness to the boat incident, just the disciples. Now, when the crowd realized neither Jesus nor the disciples were around the east shore of Lake Galilee anymore, they went looking for him back near his ministry hometown base of Capernaum over on the west. John 6.25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They were probably also wondering, how did you get here without a boat? This might have tipped them off to the fact that there was something else miraculous that had happened. We don't know if they ever found out. Jesus avoids the question and addresses a deeper issue. Verse 26, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Ouch. He puts his finger right on it. They're not eager for deeper teaching, but for their next snack. They're wanting to milk this wonder-working prophet for whatever benefit they can get out of him. Remember, they were ready to make him king by force after the feeding of the multitude. Now, quick review. What were the steps for milking the cow? A, get her where you want her. B, give her what she wants. And C, take what you can. One, two, three, follow the procedure to obtain the expected results. Jesus has this kind of x-ray vision, spiritually speaking, where he can see right through questions and posturing and pretending to what's actually inside our hearts. Like Henry Ford designing the assembly line. You could ask Henry Ford why the line wasn't working and he could diagnose it because he designed it and built it. So our Lord and Creator knows our deepest thoughts before we say a word. John 2.25 He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Jesus is ready to tell us what our real needs are, even though we may think we know what it is we truly want. He is sovereign and supreme. He won't be milked or taken advantage of by anyone. Next section, a better gift, but on God's terms. The crowd was seeking Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. Matthew Henry comments, not because he taught them, but because he fed them. Not for love, but for loaves. Thus do all who seek in religion secular advantages and follow Christ for the sake of secular preferments. End quote. Why are you here today? Are you looking for a savior for love or for loaves? Why are you here, really? Is it because it's the thing to do? Culturally, that boat sailed decades ago. Are you trying to please other people, whether relatives or others, trying to look respectable? Are your motivations religious in nature? Do you need a ticket to heaven to be assured of a fire escape? 
Do you come because you want to enjoy streets of gold when you die? That's not good enough. That's like milking the cow so I can enjoy that homemade butter and yogurt. That's not what Jesus came to give. He won't be milked for a certain product. In verse 27, Jesus contrasts this desire for temporal gains with what God is really offering through his son. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. New Living Translation. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. We don't worship Jesus for short-term gain, for food on our table, for our next paycheck, for a cottage at the lake or a cozy retirement plan. Those things will all pass away. Instead, Jesus coaches us to work for food that endures, abides, remains, lasts. The verb is the same as John 15. The branch remains or abides or is grounded in the vine. We're to work for food that endures to eternal life. Spend our energy seeking the eternal life he can give us. Now, when you hear eternal life, you may instantly mentally translate that as going to heaven when I die. Don't do that. You're missing out hugely. Eternal life starts right now when you trust in Jesus. It's a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell inside you. It's a moment-by-moment communion with your maker and hope. It's a continual dialogue in the Spirit through prayer and hearing him address and comfort you by his word, his promises in Scripture. Yes, you get to go to heaven when you die, but think of that as thrown in as an extension of what you already start enjoying here and now. Jesus says, the Son of Man will give you this food that endures to eternal life. It's by grace, not earned. It's his gift. Jesus knows that God the Father has placed his seal of approval on Jesus. This is evidenced by his sealing with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, by the miracles he performed, and by his resurrection from the dead. The person who has the seal is authorized to act on behalf of the one who gave the seal. But the crowd is still trying to milk the Messiah to get what they want on their terms. Remember the procedure with the cow? I'm sure you're bored of it by now. A, get her where you want her. B, give her what she wants. And C, take what you can. The crowd is on step B, give him what he wants. John 6, 28. And they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? What work is it you want from us so we can then turn around and take what we want? This is the question of religion. Building a a self-made ladder in an attempt to reach God. Bringing a sacrifice in an attempt to win God's approval and obtain some kind of blessing. That's how human-made religion works. But nothing we could possibly offer would ever be enough to appease an infinitely holy and powerful God we have offended. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Our very life and breath are from him. 
what could we offer to atone for our sins that he does not already have a right to? What must we do to do the works God requires, they ask. Keep all the laws and commands flawlessly? Climb the steps of St. Peter's on our knees one at a time? Give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames? Nope, it would never be enough. And that's not even what God wants. Jesus explains what God does want in verse 29. Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Huh? But that's not work. Precisely. Christianity is not do, it's done. Not what we could ever do to earn God's favor, but what God in Christ has already done to reconcile us to himself by the cross. New Living Translation, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Believe. Commit. Put your trust in. Rely totally upon. Yield yourself completely. Surrender. Lock, stock, and barrel. Be all in. Not a head knowledge, a belief that God exists and can do such and such. Even Satan believes God exists, but fundamentally rejects obedience to God. The work Jesus wants from us is to believe, to trust him, walk with him, listen to him, follow him moment by moment, instant by instant, starting now. Faith is the key to the entire Christian experience. Believing is antithetical to religiosity. Religion thrives on works as if we can earn merit and buy our ticket to heaven. Believing turns it all upside down and makes it based on relationship. A living dependence on a holy being I have to actually listen and watch for and heed and walk with for my next step. What are we really living for? What are our deepest, dearest life goals? Is it eternal life or something inferior, less lasting? Jesus elevates us to a new plane, eternal life, when we trust and commit to who he is. Next section, trading longings for lasting life. But it would seem from verse 30 that the crowd still hasn't quite got it. They're still trying to milk the Messiah, make Jesus jump through their hoops, prove himself by their standards and expectations. Verse 30. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? The irony for the reader here is obvious. He's just performed a major miracle by feeding the multitude. Overnight he walked on water and still the storm. Try that sometime. And they're still not satisfied? What more proof do they need? To the doubting, to those who resist entrusting themselves to the Savior, no proof will ever be enough. They go on to point out Moses fed their ancestors four whole decades in their wilderness wanderings, as if feeding 20,000 people on one occasion is small potatoes by comparison. Small loaves, I know. Can Jesus prove he's greater than Moses? Jesus responds in verse 32, 
I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The manna had to be picked up fresh at the start of each day, and it ceased when the Israelites entered the promised land. Jesus gives life not just for a physical being or for a short time. They haven't quite given up on this loaves indefinitely soup kitchen dream, though. Verse 34. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. New Living Translation. Give us that bread every day. Robinson's New Testament word pictures comments, like the woman at the well in John 4, they long always to have this bread, a perpetual supply. Jesus came to give life eternally, not loaves temporarily. What he offers is for the most deep, profoundest part of our soul, that deepest hunger, that gnawing corner inside us that won't be satisfied with anything less. Verse 35, and Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The phrase bread of life could mean two things, either that it has life in itself, the living bread, or that it gives life to others, like the water of life, the tree of life. Here, Jesus is probably leaning toward the sense of bread that gives life to others. Compare verse 33, the bread of God that gives life to the world. Life that's fulfilling, meaningful, on track. Life that matters in the long run. Life that has an overflow of love and concern for others because it's no longer preoccupied with amassing stuff or awards for oneself. The Greek text of what Jesus is promising here is emphatic. The person who comes to me will never go hungry. The person who believes in me will never, no way, not ever be thirsty. It's really underlined in the the words there. This is your creator who designed your innermost appetites, your soul's hidden capabilities and secrets speaking. When we are living, saved in relationship with God, filled with the Holy Spirit, Temporal pursuits matter far less. The Son of Man will give you food that endures to eternal life. The Father placed his seal of approval on Jesus. When we commit our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, absolutely believing in him, God places his Holy Spirit seal on us too. 2 Corinthians one twenty two. God set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Spirit is our down payment, our earnest, E-A-R-N-E-S-T in old language, or deposit. Ephesians 1.13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Believing in Jesus is the work God wants for us. That's what launches us into the journey called eternal life, here and now, not just when we die. John 5, 24, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Has. 
present tense. Has crossed over perfect tense. It's already happened. Uh, Section faith not works the ticket. In closing, God will not be treated like a cow to be milked. Kids that want to remember the sermon, just do this and that will help you remember the main point. True spirituality is not like a procedure we control where we input certain actions in order to obtain a certain outcome. God is not a vending machine dispensing divine favors based on the, the nickels and quarters we insert. He has set it all up in such a way that he gets the credit and the glory. It's by sheer grace through the work of Christ on our behalf. Yes, once we believe the Holy Spirit becomes active and transformative in our lives, producing good works, but those are the result of salvation, not a means of buying it. Concerning the relationship of faith and works, you've maybe heard it said, it doesn't matter what you believe, it's how you live that counts. A.J. Gordon encountered this philosophy one time as he talked with a fellow passenger on a train. The man believed he could get to heaven by his good works. Pointing to the conductor who was making his way through the coach, Gordon asked his new friend, Did you ever notice how carefully he always examines the ticket, but takes no pains when whatever to inspect the passenger? The man immediately caught the significance of the question. He had just been saying that God was interested only in what we do and not in a little bit of theological script called faith. You see, continued Gordon, the passenger and the ticket are accepted together. If he doesn't have one or has the wrong one, he will be asked to get off the train, no matter how honest he might appear to be. Just as the ticket stands for the man, faith stands for you. Thank God that the ticket of faith was purchased at a great price, but not by you or me. Have you claimed your ticket? The journey of walking with him by faith starts right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have spent so much time and energy running after food that spoils, that doesn't last. Forgive us for our wrong priorities. We recognize you are the living bread, the bread that gives life in abundance. We need you in our lives. We want that eternal life you promise. We yield to you now. We receive you now to be yours today and tomorrow and always. Strengthen our faith when we falter and hold us close to you forever. Thank you that in you we have already crossed over from death to life. Help us share that good news with others who are hungering and thirsting. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's all stand as we're able to sing.